1: Hello listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries We will get to our story in a moment First, I would like to thank all of our fans out there We cannot do this without you Please be sure to leave us a positive review and tell a friend about us The more you share our podcast, the bigger we become We have surpassed over a million downloads and it's all because of you And now, it's time to throw another log on the fire campers Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery Your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss.
0: Hi, everybody. Tonight, our story takes place a little south of the border, specifically Southgate, Kentucky, on the opposite side of the river from Cincinnati. In 1977, the Beverly Hills Supper Club Packed with crowds on a busy Memorial Day weekend, went up in flames. 165 people were trapped and killed in the inferno. Very quickly, maybe too quickly, investigators deemed the fire an accident. But then, and very much now, others are convinced the fire was arson. There are two things that make the Beverly Hills Supper Club an Ohio mystery. Southgate, Kentucky, and its sister city of Newport, were Cincinnati's playground. Of the 165 who died in that fire, over half of them were from Ohio. Second, a couple of books published in the past decade considered the question of arson and placed the blame where others have placed it before squarely on the shoulders of the Cleveland Mafia, an organized crime unit that had controlled the Newport area for decades. Witnesses say the mob had failed to get the owner of the supper club to sell them the venue, and the fire was their response. So let's get started with this tragic tale. Whether arson or negligence, it was a crime for which nobody was ever charged or held responsible. First, a little history about the area south of the river, because it's a colorful one. A long time ago, in the 1920s, the river towns south of Cincinnati started sprouting nightclubs and illegal gambling houses. One source said there was sort of an understanding among the powers that be. Most organized crime would be kept out of Cincinnati, but authorities would turn a blind eye to anything on the other side of the river. And so Newport, the first town you hit crossing the river, And Southgate, just below it, became playgrounds that looked fun on the surface, but were filled with vice and violence. If you heard our episode on George Remus, Cincinnati's king of bootleggers, it will give you a little more background on this era. It was his driver, Pete Schmidt, who bought a roadhouse on a hilltop in Southgate and turned it into the original Beverly Hills Supper Club. Now, Schmidt was just way too successful. He caught the eye of Mo Dalitz, the boss of a mob in Cleveland known as the Cleveland Four. In 1936, Dalitz paid the Beverly Hills Supper Club a visit, liked what he saw, and made Schmidt an offer. It was an offer Schmidt refused. On the night of February second, 1936, A carload of gangsters torched the club, killing the five-year-old daughter of a caretaker in the process. Schmidt rebuilt, but the pressure stayed on him until he finally sold, and the mob moved in, taking over the Beverly Hills and other high-class joints in Newport and Southgate. The Beverly Hills Supper Club became a national showcase, drawing crowds to see the likes of Frank Sinatra, Marilyn Monroe, even the wholesome Ozzie and Harriet. Dean Martin, the famous crooner from Steubenville, Ohio, even worked at the club as a blackjack dealer. Back then, the club was also a casino, openly ignoring gambling laws. They flouted all sorts of laws in those days. In 1957, A reporter counted 300 prostitutes per mile in Newport. The town marshal openly ran a brothel. Newport's homicide rate was four times the national average, and the term Newport nightgown came to mean a body wrapped in chains and thrown from a bridge. In 1957, an Esquire magazine called Newport Sin City, Little Mexico, and America's Most Wicked City. Moe Dalitz, by the way, if you don't recognize his name, went on to become the godfather of Las Vegas. In the late 1940s, he and his Cleveland-Mayfield road gang bought resort property and opened the Desert Inn Casino. Later, he also ran the Stardust. He was a key figure in shaping the Las Vegas that we know today. In the 1960s, the federal government stepped in and the gambling stopped. The Cleveland Mafia was still in full control of the area, but without the gambling, the Beverly Hills Club closed in 1961 and the building stood empty for nearly a decade. Then, in the summer of 1970, a new owner, Dick Schilling, took over the property, and began remodeling it into a modern entertainment venue. But before it had the chance to open, it suffered its second fire. A state arson investigation proved inconclusive, but the local fire chief leaned toward it being arson. Now, it's not clear why someone wanted to stop the reopening. What is known is that the mob was still very active in the area and arson seemed to be a key motivator in how they got things done. Between 1970 and 1977, a major nightclub or restaurant was burned every year in northern Kentucky, each one of them a suspected mob arson. Undeterred, Schilling started over and a year later, the new and improved Beverly Hills Supper Club reopened. Over the next few years, Schilling added several additions to the building. Its sprawling grounds featured lush gardens, an ornate gazebo, and paved walkways lined with masonry statues. It was billed as the showplace of the nation and was arguably the largest supper club between Las Vegas and the East Coast. The two-story building could host more than 2,500 people in a night and included a stage that enticed big-name headliners to come back. But history repeated itself. Just as with Schmidt back in the 1930s, Schilling proved to be too big of a success. According to some sources, the mob liked what Schilling had done and they wanted the property back. But also, like Schmidt, Schilling didn't want to sell. Later, employees would try to tell investigators that they just knew someone was going to torch the place. It was just a matter of time. May 28, 1977 It was the Saturday night of a holiday weekend, and the Beverly Hills Supper Club was jumping, its dining halls and event rooms filled with nearly 2,800 people. That was about a thousand more people than the fire marshal would have been comfortable with. But then again, state laws had allowed the venue to get away with having wood construction, highly flammable carpeting, and wood wall paneling. And no fire suppression sprinkler system, alarms, or even smoke detectors. The patrons that night were there for many, many reasons. They were celebrating birthdays and anniversaries and retirements, enjoying first dates or overdue reunions with friends. Some were wedding parties. The complex had a chapel on site that conducted three ceremonies that very night. And in the cabaret room, headline acts were welcomed from Las Vegas, Nashville, Hollywood, and New York. About 900 folks at the Supper Club that night were in the cabaret room with its red velvet decor, where they'd paid $10 a ticket to see Hollywood singer and actor John Davidson. The opening act was a pair of comedians. The room was only approved for 600 people, so, chairs were brought in to accommodate the overflow on ramps and in aisles. As the comedians took the stage, a small fire was already building in the ceiling of the room next door. It was called the Zebra Room, and it went unnoticed because for the moment it was unoccupied. Just half an hour before, it had held a wedding reception but guests complained about it being excessively warm and were disturbed by small explosions happening in the basement beneath their feet. They vacated the room early. The fire in the basement below the zebra room worked its way up into the ceiling by air conditioning ducts, and the smell reached diners in the cabaret, but they ignored those first twitches of their nose. At 9 p.m., an employee entered the zebra room. The mere act of opening the door fed the fire with a gust of fresh oxygen. The smoldering fire erupted in a flash. As a call was placed to the fire department, employees grabbed fire extinguishers. At 9.06 p.m., busboy Walter Bailey rushed onto the cabaret stage and grabbed the mic from a comedian. There is a fire, the busboy said. You have to leave. Go across the hall. Go across the empire room, he said. He pointed to two exits in the back and told them not to try the exit at the front, which is where the source of the fire was. Briefly, some diners laughed at him and stayed in their seats. They thought it was part of the act. But others got up and leisurely moved toward the exit. Then, Someone opened the door at the front. The thick black smoke from the zebra room started to pour into the cabaret. Panic set in. Diners scrambled, but there were only two exits for 900 people. Four minutes after the busboy's warning, power in the building failed. People screamed in the dark. Here's an account of what happened next, given to the Cincinnati Enquirer by John Hoyle. Hoyle was the CEO of St. Luke Hospital, enjoying dinner with a table filled with his medical staff and his wife, Janet. They were waiting for dessert when the busboy warned them of the fire. Hoyle and his group moved immediately. They looked up and saw strings of smoke slithering across the ceiling toward the crystal chandelier above their heads. They made it into the hall, then the Empire Room. The smoke was sickening and sour. It smelled like a hundred tires had burst into flames. He knew that unnatural smell came from the toxins that were being set free from the burning materials. And he knew the fumes were every bit as dangerous as the fire itself. As Hoyle led his group through the empire room, he saw linen napkins on a table. He doused them with water from abandoned drinking glasses and handed them out. Everyone clutched the wet napkins to their noses and mouths to filter the fumes. The small parade of people found an exit to a garden. After they left, they turned back, and saw fire and smoke had filled every window. An air conditioning unit exploded. Hoyle raced to find a radio and called St. Luke's Hospital. Activate the disaster plan, he told them. The two exits from the cabaret room quickly became an impenetrable wall of flesh. As people were trampled or fell from the smoke inhalation, others tried to climb over them, The human bodies soon jammed the openings like pieces of cordwood. Firefighters and other rescuers desperately tried to pull them free, grasping at clothing and outstretched hands, but there was no amount of strength that could budge them. The inferno continued to rage, sending flames a hundred feet high. At minutes past midnight, three hours after firefighters had arrived, The roof over the cabaret room collapsed, rescuers still trying to pull bodies from the exits scattered. Outside, a firefighter mumbled to a reporter watching the scene. Bodies are strewn all over inside, he said. They'll find them in the morning, but all they will find are bones. 2,600 people made it out alive that night, 200 of them injured and taken to three area hospitals for treatment. 165 people never went home again. The hillside around the supper club was littered with lifeless bodies, people who had been pulled from the wreckage, others who made it out under their own power, and then collapsed, their lungs unable to process the toxic smoke. The worst of humanity crept in. Three people were arrested for crawling between the victims and robbing them of jewelry and wallets. But man's better nature was also on display. Using flashlights, a team of Catholic priests hurried to each victim, kneeling before each prone figure, praying, checking for signs of life, and administering last rites if they didn't find any. The bodies were taken to the Fort Thomas Armory, a mile away. The first dozen arrived just after midnight, brought in by National Guard Army trucks and carried into the auditorium one by one on military-issue stretchers. The bodies were laid out on the basketball courts, men in their best or tuxedos, many of the women in floor-length evening gowns and glittering shoes, Many of the dead, especially the women, had no identification, their purses lost in the panic. In preparation for what needed to happen next, nurses walked among the dead. They knelt next to those whose faces were still recognizable. They washed away the soot with a pail of soapy water and stroked their hair into place. But there was no way to conceal the appearance of some the clenched teeth, a look of pain, burned fists raised as if trying to ward off the inevitable. And when morning dawned, the loved ones arrived in search of their missing family members. A nurse would ask them for a description, then, with a member of the clergy at their side, they were taken only to bodies that best matched their memories. A hundred times the grim scene was repeated, The white plastic cover would be lowered over a face, and someone, a mother, a father, a child, screamed or collapsed to the floor in sobs or stood frozen in shock, unable to move. By Sunday afternoon, a hundred of the victims had a name. They were removed to refrigerated trucks provided by the Kroger Company and taken away. As for the rest... It was the FBI's turn now. They moved through the rows, snipping a finger from each so they could analyze their prints. Volunteers from funeral homes and students from a Cincinnati embalming school moved quickly to embalm the rest that were on site in order to stop the decomposition process in the sweltering heat. That morning, a crane was brought in to remove the roof from where most of the dead had been found, and more were feared entombed. The search was halted for a few hours when rain made crawling through the debris dangerous and difficult. For the next three days, the building was slowly disassembled in order to collect all the human remains. Kentucky officials ruled fairly quickly that the fire was an accident. They cited substandard wiring, overcrowding, flammable building materials, and a shortage of proper exits. Adding to the problem was the way the complex had evolved. The many additions created a system where rooms opened into other rooms. In the dark, people who thought they'd chosen a door to the outside were only moving further inside. But there were plenty of people who didn't believe it was an accident at all. David Brock, an 18-year-old busboy, was suspicious about people he had seen in the zebra room that afternoon. They were in the ceiling for two hours. They told him they were working on an air conditioning unit. Later, he said he asked the property owner about that ceiling job and was told there was no work scheduled to be done that day and there was no air conditioning unit in that room. In 2008, after years of persistent allegations, Kentucky Governor Steve Beshear put together a special review team to look into the possibility that the mob was involved. But the review team's final report concluded there was only a tiny shred of evidence of arson and a huge mountain of unsupported speculation. There just wasn't enough to warrant a formal reinvestigation. That did not silence the accusers. In 2012, author Robert Webster At the urging of that busboy, David Brock, who had seen the workers in the ceiling that day, revealed his investigation in Beverly Hills Supper Club, the untold story of Kentucky's worst tragedy. Webster contended that the fire was set by the mafia in retaliation for the supper club's owner refusing to sell to them. He said he reviewed police reports, legal depositions, interviewed eyewitnesses, and talked to technical experts. His book tracked the rise of the mafia in northern Kentucky from the 40s into the 70s and a local culture based on greed and money. Much of his theory was based on personal interviews. Webster said he worried about the investigation after he learned that All of those concerns voiced by employees never turned up in any police reports. It was as if they were ignoring them. A few years after that book, a former Cincinnati Inquirer reporter, Peter Bronson, took a closer look at the evidence and also became convinced the fire was the work of the Cleveland Mafia. He spelled out his argument in a book, Forbidden Fruit, Sin City's Underworld, and the Supper Club Inferno. He used FBI files and interviews and stories of survivors to support his contention that the mob was still running the area in the 70s and that law enforcement consciously stayed out of their way. Bronson said, You can go back through the 70s and every year a major nightclub, casino, strip joint or restaurant was burned down by arson. By the mob. And he wasn't wrong. Even the Cincinnati Inquirer, the day after the fire, ran a story listing all the fires that had happened in that area the previous years. Bronson shared more thoughts in his Cincinnati Inquirer column just last year. He said long ago those in power agreed they would try to keep the city clean, but would overlook south of the river. Newport, Kentucky, became an underworld kingdom. He wrote, State officials blocked a state fire marshal's effort to investigate arson and immediately covered up possible criminal evidence with a bulldozer and a crane. Three of the four blue-ribbon investigators and the governor who appointed them were corrupt. He also said he learned that an informant told the FBI he overheard the men who planned the Supper Club fire a couple of weeks before it happened. The headline act that night, John Davidson, was backstage when the fire broke out. He and others were able to flee through a back door, but his music director... Douglas Harrow didn't make it. Davidson later participated in a charity concert to raise money for the fire victims and their families. Survivors and victims' families sued, building a case around the state's argument that it was all caused by faulty wiring. It was a long court battle, but they won and were awarded millions. For four decades, the site remained untouched holy ground. Honeysuckle bushes grew over the rubble. Only now is the land moving on. Plans for a $65 million residential development on the side of the fire are underway. It includes a memorial for those killed in the fire. And thanks to pressure from a lawsuit, no building will be erected where the main cabaret room once stood. Bill Rate told the Cincinnati Inquirer that It was okay. It was time for the site to have a new purpose. Bill Raitt lost his wife in that fire. They were celebrating Virginia's 34th birthday. They couldn't get out of the cabaret. Bill said as soon as they got a whiff of that smoke, they fell unconscious. A firefighter reached him and dragged him out. He woke up hours later to find out his wife did not make it. He envisioned the new life planned for the site and said, "'I'm sure the community has been ready for a long time.'" Now, I found an accounting of all the victims, and while I had to take a guess at some of their addresses, I came up with a rough estimate of the roll from Ohio. At least 88 of the 165 victims were living in Ohio. Many more were born in Ohio, But here is the breakdown by county of the 88 who were current residents at the time. 29 were from Montgomery County, that's the Dayton area. 27 were from Hamilton County and the Cincinnati area. 13 were from Butler County, mostly the city of Hamilton. 6 were from Warren County. 5 from Lawrence County. 2 each from Franklin and Claremont Counties and one each from Fayette, Dark, Preble, and Green Counties. I've put their names, ages, hometowns, and occupations on our website. I Like I said, I had to make a guess on a handful of people who came from a township that had a name that was shared by more than one county. So, if you see a mistake in that list, please let me know and I will fix it. Research for the story is owed to the Cincinnati Inquirer, WHAS Channel 11 in Louisville, and those two books that I mentioned in this story
1: that's it for tonight listeners for photos news clippings and more on this and every episode hop on over to our website ohiomysteries.com we are also a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts the Evergreen Podcasts Network for more information or to check out other shows on this network please visit evergreenpodcasts.com also check out our new YouTube channel